بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيد الأولين والآخرين سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم خير من قد وحد الله سبحانه وتعالى بالعبادة على آله وأصحابه أجمعين وبرز الله سبحانه وتعالى Send peace and blessings upon our beloved Messenger Muhammad وسلم, upon his family, his companions, and those who follow them until the end of time. Alhamdulillah, during Ramadan, we were gathering together. A number of people asked me to teach a basic text on theology, on aqidah. So here you can see, mashallah, this basic text is only one page. Only one page, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. That's why we say aqidah. المسلم وضحة لأنها صفحة The Aqeedah actually is not an overly complex subject because it's only one page. It's very clear, alhamdulillah. And the text that we're going to be going through is written by, mashallah, one of the great, great scholars of Islam over the last 400 years, Sheikh Ahmad al-Dardir, over the last 250 years. Well, Sheikh Ahmad al-Dardir, he used to live behind Gami'i al-Azhar. Behind uh, Masjid al-Azhar, his name is Abu Barakat because, mashallah, he was known for a lot of blessings, a lot of barakah. And I can give you a story about him that one time, one, I heard from one of my teachers that one time, mashallah, he was sitting in the masjid with his students and there was uh, like lunchtime and they were eating like what's called ta'miyah, falafel. And a cat suddenly jumped up and grabbed one of the falafel from the hand of one of the students of the Shaykh. So the Shaykh, he said, SubhanAllah, you know, as he's watching, then his student, he hit the cat. And then the Shaykh, he scolded him for hitting the cat. He said, SubhanAllah, this cat is seeking its provisions from what Allah has given it. You have no right to even abuse, mashallah, SubhanAllah, animals. So the Shaykh, he was known, especially towards the later periods, you know, he died a few years before the French conquest, radiallahu anhu, for being someone who was very active socially, someone who was socially conscious, someone who was involved in education and teaching, and was the sheikh of Islam of Egypt in his time, especially the Maliki Madhab, uh, radiallahu anhu, and the head of Al-Khalwatiyah, which is a famous Sufi tariqah, uh, that existed in his time. Naf'anallahu ta'ala bi'ilmihi fi darini ameen. Um, the Sheikh also had a number of students and from amongst the students of Sidna Sheikh uh, Ahmed Ad-Dirdir radiallahu ta'ala who was Mustafa ibn Ahmed Al-Aqbawi. If you're from Cairo, you know Al-Aqbawi is actually in reference to a location where Uqba ibn Amr is buried, the companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he settled in Egypt and he died in Egypt and that area, Uqbawiyah, is still known to this day. His grave is still there. People go, they visit his grave, uh, subhanAllah, and they you know make dua for him. Something interesting that Uqba, radiallahu anhu, he sided with Muawiyah in the uh, sedition against Sayyidina Ali. Karramallahu wajha. And the people of Egypt generally because of the large presence of the family of the Prophet in Egypt, 
they they were not in agreement with Muawiyah radiallahu anhu but when Uqba came to Egypt they said even though we don't like you because of your opposition to the family of the Prophet وسلم, and you're siding with Muawiyah we still respect you because you saw the face of the Prophet and you spent time with Sayyidina Nabi so they welcomed him to uh, what was that time known as Fustat Al-Qahira used to be called Al-Fustat for Sayyidina Uqba ibn Amr he lived in Egypt and he died in Egypt. So Sheikh Mustafa Ahmed Al-Aqbawi is from that neighborhood, from that area, mashallah, mashallah, mashallah. So we're going to be reading a brief introduction, alhamdulillah, to Al-Aqidah because so many people uh, ask about it, mashallah. And it's important before we start to make a few important kind of points. The first is the hadith of Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam nas man nas That the best person is the one who benefits others And if we look, and this is where I'm trained so this is what I know MashaAllah the, the, the benefit of certain teachers within the Azhar and within Egypt I'm not Egyptian, I'm, I'm from the USA But I, I studied and lived there so I can just give a few examples that I know of from there. The first is uh, of Sheikh uh, 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 Sayyidina uh, Ahmed uh, al-Marzuqi, who was one of the great scholars of Egypt in the 19th century. He actually died in Mecca. He was the Mufti of the Maliki Madhab. He wrote a poem called Aqidatul Awam. Inshallah, I teach Aqidatul Awam at my school, Swiss, and I'm going to teach it here, inshallah, in a much more abbreviated way. Sheikh Ahmed al-Marzuqi, he used to live in an area, Minya, which was the area of the Mamalik dynasty, so the aristocracy. And every day he would take a donkey from that area to the Azhar, right? In those days, your donkey was like your Uber, mashallah. So he would take the donkey, alhamdulillah, to uh, al-Azhar. After a few years, people begin to notice that the people in charge of the donkeys, they saw them talking proper Arabic, alhamdulillah. And, and they saw them uh, uh, speaking, mashallah, like fluent, strong Arabic and talking about issues of deen. Even though the people that were in charge of donkeys were, were you know, known for being illiterate. So they went to them and they said like, mashallah, like where did you learn the knowledge of aqidah and hadith and fiqh? They said, min sheikh dah from Sheikh Ahmed al-Marzuqi every day, subhanAllah, that one of them would ride to the Azhar and back with the Sheikh, he would teach them. So the Sheikh was invested in what we call public education, being a public educator, not simply sitting behind an ivory tower, but like being with the people and benefiting the people. Another example I heard from one of my teachers was that of Sheikh Ibn Abdullah, one of the scholars who used to live in Giza, which is like where the pyramids are and stuff. And this also is around a hundred or so years ago, who every day also he would ride with his servant, he had a servant, to Masjid al-Azhar. And again, you know, at that time the servants weren't known for being highly educated. So this happened for around 15 years. He would go back and forth with the Sheikh. And one day 
in the masjid, in, in, in Masjid Al-Azhar, there was a debate happening about an issue of theology. And suddenly, the servant, he said, I know, I know this, I know this answer. And he started to explain the issue that brought both sides together. Then they said, man, how did you, how did you learn this? How did you learn this knowledge? How are you quoting this text and this and this and this and this? He said, I've, I've been riding with the Sheikh every day for like 15 years from Giza to the Azhar and back to Giza. And every day he would review his notes and share what he reviewed with me. And subhanAllah, this is how, mashallah, mashallah, I learned this. And this individual was honored as an Azhari. Imagine, he was tested by the scholars, he was given imtihan shafawi because he couldn't read or write. He was given an oral examination, the servant of the sheikh. And they gave him the, the dress of the scholars. They said, you know more than us. Because khayru nas man nas. The best person is the one who benefits people. One more example of Sheikh Aisha bin Shati. A Sheikh Aisha bin Shati, she died a few years ago. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. Her father, around a hundred years ago or so, was considered one of the most preeminent scholars in the science of hadith. Especially one of the most important books in the science of hadith, the Muqaddimah of Abi Amr ibn al-Salah. When she was a child, he used to take her with her to, mashallah, all of the gatherings of his colleagues whether it was at the university, whether it was at someone's home, whether there was a debate happening, this young girl would always, mashallah, be with her father. Mashallah, mashallah. And then, you know, she became very well-educated. She went on to what's called Dara Ulu. Many people know her story is very famous, mashallah. But then her father, he died. And when her father died, there's a publisher, Dara Ma'arif. They decided to put together a, a great, final copy which has like been critically edited and academically approved of the Muqaddimah of Abi Amr Ibn As-Salah. When they started this work, you know, there was a number of scholars involved looking at, you know, the, 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 the handwritten text and so on and so forth. And subhanAllah, when they started this work, they discovered that there were like mistakes in the manuscript or these things couldn't be corroborated. So somebody said to them, I know the person who is most knowledgeable of this text on the face of the earth. They said who? They said, Sheikh Aisha bin Shatir. So they went to her and they began to have her examine. And I can bring it for you. One second. Let me grab it. The Muqaddimah of Abi Amr ibn al-Salah. And when she began to look at it, she said, no, 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 this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this word is wrong, this letter is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And they asked her, how do you know this? She said, because since my 
primary age, I was with my father. This is her edition of the book. This is considered the premier edition of the Muqaddimah of Ibn Salah. And if you look here, Doctora Aisha Abdurrahman bint Shatiq, Rahimahullah. The point is, and you can look at her footnotes, man. Her footnotes are half the page. The point is, The best person is the one who benefits people. I want you to think about something now. And I'm saying this from the point of tarbiyah. The education that you've been exposed to, the arguments and debates that you've seen. Unfortunately, this is not available in English, man. I don't, I don't know how anyone would be able to translate it. Allahu Akbar. I mean, Sheikh Mustafa uh, uh, Imara, one of our teachers in Hadith, it took him seven years to explain her book. Seven years, it's on YouTube in Egypt. But I want you to ask yourself a very important question. The things that you're exposed to about Islam, the arguments that you see amongst Muslims, that you are exposing yourself to? No problem, good question, mashallah. Do they create more light or more heat? Do they create more light for you to see? Or do they create more heat that hurts you? I want you to ask yourself this question. Because what I'm about to do now is go with through with you a classical text. This text here. We're gonna finish it in probably 45 minutes. In 45 minutes, you will know everything you need to know that makes you, alhamdulillah, settled in your belief as a Muslim. The foundations of your belief as a Muslim. After that, khalas, any questions you have, any doubts you have, ask. But right now, we need to skip the heat and start to generate light. We need to focus, alhamdulillah. So we're going to start this text in, in that vein of benefiting people. Sheikh Ahmed Ad-Dardir, he wrote one page that contains the entire aqidah of Ahli Sunnah. And actually, I translated this book. You can find it. It's on Amazon. I wrote it, I said, for parents and teens, but it's for everybody. It's called Essentials of Islamic Faith. The explanation, as I mentioned earlier, is by Sheikh Mustafa Al-Aqbawi, radiyallahu ta'ala anhum. فَهَيَّ بِنَا نَبْدَ إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهِ بِهَذِهِ الْعَقِيدَةِ السَّلِيمَةِ الصَّحِيحَةِ الْوَضْحَةِ I also have here notes for you that you can uh, take advantage of, inshaAllah ta'ala. Yes. The Shaykh, he begins, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Why does he begin Bismillahirrahmanirrahim? Because the Quran begins Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And also Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, every important issue, Kullu amrin balin. Every important issue that doesn't begin with the basmala, fahuwa aqta' is amputated. Right? You can imagine how hard it would be to function in your life without limbs. You could function, but it would be difficult. So the idea here is that any really important affair that you want to start, if it doesn't start with the basmala, it's like it's amputated from barakah. This hadith is da'if. The hadith, hadith da'if. 
then the question is, if this hadith is da'if, how come on every single book of the ulama that you find, the ulama, you find the basmala? I'm sure this book of Sheikh Aisha bin Shatiq, if you look at the beginning of it, what do you think it's going to start with? Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I'm just going to grab any book from here. The first book, Al-Kashaf of Sidna Zamakhshari, Al-Mu'tazili. What does it start with? Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Let's go here. Al-Futuhat al-Makkiyya al-Sheikh al-Akbar, Sheikh ibn Arabi. Futuhat al-Makkiyya. I'm sure if we go to the first page of his book, what's it going to start with? Ah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So here we have any book I'm taking off the shelf. Any book I'm taking off the shelf by any alim starts Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. One of the biggest challenges of the contemporary Muslim community is that it has been exposed now to what would only have been considered a hundred years ago, the fringes of Sunni thought. The, the, the margins of Sunni thought. For example, that a hadith da'if should be treated like a hadith mawdu'. That a hadith da'if should be completely rejected. This goes against the majority of scholars of hadith in Sunni Islam. Ha, I just proved it to you. Every single book I'm taking off the shelf, whether they're from Andalus, whether they're from Iraq, whether they're from the Maliki Madhab, whether it's Imam al-Tabarani, every single one of them starts with the Basmala. So what did this new exposure to this marginalized, marginalized thought in Aqidah and the Uloom do to the majority of Muslims? It caused them because they thought that marginalized thought was mainstream, that the majority of their ulama are off the deen. And when they begin to assume that the majority of their ulama are off the deen, they begin to swear from Surat al-Mustaqim. And that's why many of us, we treat the imams and teachers in our community like Bani Israel treated its prophets, as the prophet said we would, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I want you to understand something when you're with me, that I am working to actively unprogram the strange and often minority thoughts within certain French Sunni ideas and bring us back to the centralized mainstream Sunni thoughts, which we find across the Ummah. Not to vilify those people or to, to say that they're wrong, but to put them in their right place, that you are always a fringe idea, that you are always on the fringe when it comes to issues, not the majority, not the mainstream. And one of those fringe ideas is that a weak hadith equates to a fabricated hadith. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. What's the proof? The hadith that everything should start with the basmala is weak. But every single book I took off the shelf here by great ulama, and some of them even from the salaf, starts with the basmala. What does that mean? Then that means that the ulama treated weak hadith different than fabricated hadith. And that there are darajatul da'af. That there are certain levels and different levels of weakness. 
need to remember this. It's very important. Also, mashallah, for those of you who are my students, serious students, there's an important principle that when we have weak hadith, usually when we have something sahih, something sound, we say al-am yukhassas. That if we have something sound, usually what is sound, then the general text is going to be restricted by a specific text. For example, Allah says, That the food of the people of the book is, is allowed for you. This is restricted by something which is sound, which says, Don't eat from anything that Allah's name hasn't been pronounced. So, eat any of their food. Now we find a text later that restricts it. It has to be slaughtered. So this is am yukhassas. Pay attention. However, when it comes to weak texts, we say the opposite. That what is specific is interpreted through the more general text. What do I mean by that? When we take all these different ahadith together about starting something, we find every serious manner issue that doesn't start with Bismillah or every serious issue that doesn't start with Alhamdulillah. Those are specific. The Basmala and Alhamdulillah are specific. But then we find another hadith that says every issue which doesn't start be Dhikrillah. Dhikrillah is general. Dhikrillah is general. So when we interpret this, we understand it means anything that you want to start with, which is very serious. If you don't start with dhikr of Allah, then it's like amputated from blessings. I'm going to repeat this again for my students. Number one, two authentic hadith or two authentic texts. We say, al-am yukhassas. With two weak hadith or two texts which are questionable, we say, al-taqsis yu'ammam, al-aks. Now we start the text insha'Allah, so get ready, prepare. You could take some notes and people who take notes in the chat box, of course, is super appreciated. But what we're going to now briefly in the next 30 minutes or so is go through the entire aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Qala al-Shaykh naf'anallahu ta'ala bi'ilmihi fi darini ameen. Qala yajibu ala al-mukallafi ma'rifatu ma yajibu lillahi ta'ala wa liyanbiya'ihi wa malaikatihi al-kiram. Sheikh Ahmad al-Dardir, he says that it is obligatory upon the mukallaf. What he means is yajibu shar'an. That it is an obligation from the point of sharia. And we understand from this that we have three type of rulings. We don't have to talk about it now, but in the future. Number one, hukum shar'i. Number two, hukum ada. Number three, hukum aqli. Right? A, a ruling that comes from sharia. This is haram, this is halal. Number two, a ruling that comes, generates from the mind. For example, half of a hundred is 50. You don't have to ask, Ya Shaykh, what's the dalil? Ala anna nusul khamsin. You don't have to ask that question. Aw khamsun. The third was called hukum ada. Those things related to norms. Of course, the second and third are going to fall under the umbrella of the sharia. So the Shaykh, he says, Yajibu ala al-mukallaf. Who's the mukallaf? The mukallaf is you is the person who is responsible. What makes someone responsible? Three things. Number one, they have the mental ability to moralize. They understand the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. Number two, they have the physical ability to perform. 
those things which Allah commands them. And number three, they know about it. They have the knowledge, what's called bulugh al-da'wah. So we say that taklif, burdening, has three conditions. What makes someone responsible in Islam is number one, the ability to moralize and understand things intellectually. Number two, the ability to physically perform those things. And number three, bulugh al-da'wah, that they know about it. If they don't know about it, then we say their case is with Allah. A lot of times Muslims ask me, what about people who never heard about Islam? Ahlul fitra, their case is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What about people who have not been properly exposed to Islam? We say their case is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why many of us who accepted Islam, we may have family members who have, were not exposed to Islam and died we can ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make them from those that he has mercy on amongst Ahlul Fitra. There's nothing wrong with that, alhamdulillah. This also hits the question for parents, what if you have a child who's physically mature but mentally immature, or mentally mature but physically immature, we say this is called taklif naqis. What does taklif naqis mean? It means a deficient taklif, a deficient responsibility. So therefore, maybe your child has physically gone through puberty, but the maturation mentally isn't there. You should be merciful upon them. You should not have the same expectation you would have over someone who has both. Maybe someone's child is mentally mature, but physically, say, for example, unable to fast or pray then you should be mercy upon, merciful upon them. This takes us to a third issue. What about people with Alzheimer's or depression or even OCD or ADHD? In all of these situations, if there are challenges, if co challenges cognitively, even emotionally, psychologically, like trauma, that impact their ability to perform the obligations, then there's mercy. I'll give you an example. A woman came to me years ago who had a history of bulimia, she had converted to Islam and she said that when I fast, I can't stop fasting. When I fast, I can't stop fasting. I said, when was the last time you ate? She said, 48 hours ago. I said, Ya Allah, but it's not allowed. She said, I can't eat because fasting in the month of Ramadan triggers my eating disorders. In this inst instance, this is called taklif naqis. This is beyond her ability. This is something that she can't control. And our job is to heal her to a place where she can come back and worship Allah. So I told her, don't fast, alhamdulillah, and wait and work with your therapist and work through the things that you're going through. And in the future, contact me. If you feel you can start fasting, we can work something out for you. So now what did we just expand on? In, in, in less than three words from the text, look at the lessons you took. This is the benefit of taking the classical texts. يجب على المكلف so the, the first primary obligation upon a responsible person is ma'rifah. What does ma'rifah mean? Al-ilmu al-jazim. Right? It means knowledge, sound knowledge. Imagine what a beautiful religion that the first obligation upon a responsible person is to learn. Allahu Akbar. Do we teach Islam like this? Do we encourage people to learn? Do we encourage people to ask questions? Are our Islamic studies programs those that are vibrant with profound questions that calibrate and generate answers for the day? Or is it filled with insecure teachers who are not comfortable being questioned and engaged? If it's the latter, we're in trouble. The Prophet used to say, فَحَدِّثُونِي Talk to me. Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. فَيَجِبُوا عَلَى الْمُكَلَّفِ مَعْرِفَةُ the first primary obligation is to learn. 
We have a very important axiom in Islam that says whatever allows you to complete an obligation becomes obligatory. Whatever allows you to complete an obligation becomes an obligatory. So if knowledge is an obligation, then anything that leads to that knowledge is obligatory. That's why Islamic schools are very important. That's why we should take it very seriously about creating colleges to train Islamic studies teachers. That's why, at least in English-speaking countries, we have to have proper colleges to create proper imams and shaykhat who can teach the people because they are the entry points into learning. Our text and resources have to be strong so that we can make sure people have access to knowledge. Many Muslims are too intimidated to go to the mosque, too scared to go to the mosque. So there has to be other entry points for them to engage faith. So we have to support efforts to make education readily accessible, affordable, and relevant to Muslims. This is wajib. Fard al-kifayah. That's why Sayyidina Imam Suyuti radiallahu anhu, he said that it is a communal obligation to have a teacher in every city, a teacher of religious studies. We may be upset at other religious groups. We may not agree with other religious groups, but are we as passionate about scaling and creating institutions as those people are on falsehood with the truth? Are we as passionate with the truth as, as others are with falsehood? That tells you a lot about where we are. So the first obligation, and you want to remember this, upon you and upon anyone interested in Islam is to think and to learn, to ask questions and be educated. فالشيخ بيقول يجب على المكلف معرفة ما يجب لله تعالى ولأنبيائه وملائكته الكرام that the first obligation from the Sharia is for a person to know what they have to believe about God, what they have to believe about the prophets, and what they have to believe about the malaika, the angels. MashaAllah. What a religion! That the first obligation is to learn. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam in the Quran, وَقُرْ رَبِّ زِيدْنِي عِلْمًا my Lord, increase me in knowledge. My Lord, increase me in knowledge. So, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Are those who know and those who don't know the same? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says very beautifully, Are those who know and those who don't know equal? And Allah says, يَرْفَعِ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ الدَّرَجَاتِ That Allah will raise the people of knowledge. Are we as passionate about learning Islam, as in it, which we believe to be the truth, as other religious communities are as passionate about learning falsehood? Then who should we blame? So Sayyidina Imam Sheikh Ahmad al-Dardir, he says, يَجِبُوا عَلَى الْمُكَلَّفِ مَعْرِفَةِ the first obligation Sharia puts on a person is to learn. And nobody will learn for you. I remember when I first became Muslim, I used to get upset at the Arabs. You know, I was a young kid. Man, why don't these Arabs teach me Arabic, man? Because you think Arabs, they all speak like Arabic and they're all like ready to teach, which is not the case. It's not fair to have that assumption, but I was young. Man, why don't these Arabs teach me, man, Arabic, blah, 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 blah,
I remember one of the old heads, Sheikh Abdurrahman uh, Basir, who I became Muslim with, may Allah bless him. He said, I need to talk to you. He said, Akhi, I want to tell you something very important. And that is that nobody is going to learn for you. Nobody. Nobody is going to learn for you. Nobody. You have to learn for yourself. So in the first few words, the Shaykh locates the importance of religious knowledge. He says, It's an obligation upon you and me to take ownership of our religion and learn. And this is the majority of Sunni theologians. When they taught Aqidah, they taught it from this perspective. What do you have to believe about God? What are you forbidden to believe about God? And what is probable for you to believe about God? What do you have to believe about the prophets? What are you not allowed to believe about the prophets? And what is probable in your belief about the prophets? What you have to believe about angels? What you have to deny about angels? What is probable in relationship to angels? And the books and so on and so forth. This method, what's obligatory to believe about God? What's obligatory to deny about God? What is probable in your relationship with God? This method is the method of the majority of Sunnis. A minority of Sunnis, they divide Tawheed into Rububiyyah, Uluhiyyah, and Asma'i Wasifat. This was always a fringe element within Sunni theology. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I don't agree with it necessarily. Doesn't mean we should fight over it. But we need to understand that this way of presenting Tawheed, Rububiyyah, Uluhiyyah, Asma'i Wasifat is not the mainstream of Sunnis. It's very important to know this, although it may be what you're exposed to. So the Shaykh, alhamdulillah, he introduces our understanding of how we build a meaningful relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, يَجِبُ وَعَلَى الْمُكَلَّفِ مَعْرِفَةُ مَا يَجِبُ لِلَّهِ تَعَالَى وَلِأَنْبِيَائِهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ الْكِرَامِ And then he continues, rahimahullah, and we'll read this part inshaAllah ta'ala, and we may have to to stop because we don't want to take too much of your time. But he says, That you have to believe 20 things about God. What do I mean about probable? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could make you the most six, you could be the next John Singleton, Singletary. Or you may not be. You may be the next, you know what I'm saying, greatest director in history. You may not be. I may, you know, memorize Sahih Bukhari. I may not. So that's probable. I could be rich. I could be poor. I could be happy. I could be sad. I could be sick. I could be healthy. What we call al-mumkinat, ja'izat. And this is where most people, we have challenges in aqidah. What do we mean by, we? what do we have to believe about God? We're going to talk about it. What do we mean by we have to deny about God? We're going to talk about it. What do we mean by probabilities? We're going to talk about it now, inshallah, uh, very quickly. So the Shaykh, he says, sifa. There are 20 things you have to know about God. Obligatory things you have to affirm about Allah. Maybe somebody asks, why not the 99 names of Allah? What about Asma and this and this? Why? Because the ulama knew that this was hard for people to navigate. How many people are going to take the time to study all of those 99 names of Allah? Then how many people are going to go through all of the different ahadith 
traditions that mention them and even those that they differ over. Most people don't have time for that. So what did they do? They said, listen, we're going to give you 20 concepts. These 20 concepts encapsulate everything you need to know about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala based on the Quran and authentic hadith. So the shaykh, he says, فَيَجِبُوا لِلَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ عِشْرُونَ سِفَةٍ وَهِيَ الْوُجُودِ The first is existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists. We have to affirm that he exists. If we don't affirm that Allah exists, then there's no deen, there's no prophets, there's no purpose. But we believe also there's no creation. And the opposite of al-wujud is al-adam. So in every word he's mentioned, the opposite of what is infirmed is what you have to deny. So in reality, you're not learning 20 parts of aqidah, you're learning 40. Subhanallah. Because what's inferred is what's forbidden. So al-wujud, Allah exists, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the opposite of that is non-existence. How do we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists? Number one is we look at the world around us, everything is, is what's called matter. It's agreed upon now the law of thermodynamics that matter does not create itself, nor does it destroy itself. But we see in front of us, matter is here. Matter, I'm here, you're here. Nahnu indana wujud. We exist, but you and I know that we didn't create ourselves. We have never seen matter create itself. In the pure sense of the word, we have never seen. And in fact, I'll give you a small drill to try. I want everyone who's watching right now to close your eyes, but you're going to be freaked out by this. So be ready. Close your eyes and imagine nothing. Close your eyes and imagine non-existence. Can you do it? Usually, when I ask people, share with me what you saw, they say, yeah, I imagine non-existence. What did you see? I saw red, I saw black. Well, red and black exist. So you saw something. You didn't imagine non-existence. I want you to imagine nothing in the material world. You can't. And I can't. And the reason you and I can't is because it's not written in our hard drive. We are not programmed to even be able to imagine Al-Adam. No computer programming can imagine non-existence because in it itself exists. We cannot escape existence, even in our imagination. And even in the most complex mathematics, it cannot happen. You know why? Because none of us are khaliq. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we affirm this. We exist, but we cannot even imagine non-existence. So something which is not matter made matter. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. This class, actually, I teach in detail at my school, SuhaibWeb.com. But every Sunday, inshallah, we're going to teach this till we finish it because it is fard on me to teach this. I have to teach this. But if you want to support my work, wallahi, the best thing you can do to help us grow is to enroll at my school. And you see there it's pinned.
It's recorded, I'll repost it inshallah. Of course, man. Knowledge has to be accessible. So he says, Al-Wujud. Uh, I'll let you guys know when it's going to start, inshallah. Sunday afternoons, inshallah. Al-Wujud. So that's an, that's an intellectual proof. A textual proof, Allah says, Innani anallahu la ilaha illa an. I am Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the first, what we call, al-sifat al-nafsiyya or sifat al-wujudiyya. Existence. That's why Allah says in the Quran, in yourself, there's a sign. Think about it. You can't even imagine. So you can tell an atheist, imagine non-existence. Another one I like to do with children is imagine a creation that has never been seen before. A different shape, a different color, a different dimension. Try Watch this, try it again. We already did non-existence. Now let's try to imagine something that exists that is not related to anything we know, not even the colors that we know. You can't do it because you do not have the ability to imagine non-existence and you do not have the ability to imagine creation because this is not on your hard drive. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala huwa khaliq kulli shi. Fa'adha'u al-wujud. Then he says, فَيَجِبُوا لِلَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ عِشْرُونَ صِفَةٍ وَهِيَ الْوُجُودُ وَالْقِدَمِ What does qidam mean? No beginning. Primordial. لَيْسَ لَهُ بِدَايَةٍ كَمَا قَارِ إِبْنَا بِزَيْدَ الْقَيْرَوَانِ فِي رِسَالَتِهِ لَيْسَ لَهُ بِدَايَةٍ he has no beginning. What does al-baqa mean? He has no ending. So he said he exists. And we noted that his existence is beyond matter. Because if he was matter, he would have a beginning and an end. He wouldn't be creator because matter cannot create nor destroy itself. Shut al-Hadid. Good, mashallah. But also, if something has a beginning and an ending, what's called huduth. You want to remember this word, huduth. Then that means it's matter. Something has a start and an end, it means it's matter. So then it can't be the creator. So how do we begin to understand Allah's existence? لا بداية الله ولا نهاية بل هو خارج He's beyond the beginning or an end. Subhanallah. This is Tawheed. This is who you worship. This is who you pray to. This is who you make sujood to. This is who you make dua to. This is who you cry to. This is who brings happiness to your heart. La ilaha illallah. So al-huduth. What does huduth mean? Something has a beginning and an end. Sayyidina Imam Ahmed in another book he says that Huduth means that something has a bit, it starts after it didn't exist. Wasn't there a time you and I didn't exist? Can you imagine what your non-existence was like? Can you describe your non-existence? You can't. 
So what is the thing that awjadaka fi hada al-wujud? What is it that truly brought you into existence? So now you see Tawheed as taught by the majority of Ahl Sunnah is impactful. It's not theoretical only. It impacts you. Because this Tawheed is designed to create a greater reliance and love for Allah. Not to fight the Muslims and to argue and to split the community and destroy us. La'a. But to create a love for Allah and a reverence for Allah and respect for the sacred. Tell you, you got to slow down, man. I'm about to hire you to do some work next week. I hope you're in New York. I need some film work done, inshallah. Next week. So he says, فَيَجِبُ لِلَّهِ تَعَلَى شُرُونَ وَهِيَ الْوُجُودِ The opposite of wujud is non-existence. وَالْقِدَمْ وَالْبَقَاءِ The opposite of al-qidam is birth. The opposite of baqa is death. Allah says, لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ Allah has no beginning. Everything on the earth will perish except the only thing left will be Allah. Then he says, What is al-mukhalafa? Opposition. Lil-hawadith to those things that have a beginning and an end. I talked about huduth earlier. Huduth, bidaya nihaya, al wujud, wal adam. Allah subhanahu wa taala is muhalafatul al hawadithin. Allah subhanahu wa taala is in opposition to all things that have a beginning or an end, everything that exists, because He's the Creator. When we say this, though, we mean it in three ways. Number one, in His essence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his essence isn't divided into parts, one of three. He's not like fire and ice. He's not, uh, you know, a, a gender, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even though we say he, that's part of language. But Allah is beyond gender, subhanahu wa ta'ala. What's the proof for this? Laysa kamithlihi shay. There's nothing like Allah. What's the proof for muhalifatul al-hawadith? Walam yakun lahu kufuwan ahad. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if he was like matter, he would be matter. And if he was matter, he could no longer be the creator. And this is one of our greatest attacks on the idea that Jesus is God. Because when you make God into the vessel of the physical, he is no longer transcendent. He is no longer beyond mistakes. He is no longer beyond shortcomings. He now has embodied the material. So therefore he has a beginning and an end and he cannot be the creator. Therefore he's not worthy. Of worship. How can I stop wasting time on negative things? Focus in the lesson and learn. Allah. Don't make it about yourself. Don't come into a gathering and you're so worried about yourself that it makes you hyper-focused on yourself. That's not a good quality. Focus on the lesson. Learn. Maybe the learning will have something for you, inshallah. So, مُخَالَفَةُ hawadith means in three areas. In his essence, Allah is not one of three. Number two, in his actions, nothing in creation acts like God. And number three, his attributes and qualities. Nothing is like him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wal qiyamu bi nafs. 
after Mukhalafatul Hawadith, the, the fourth, Al Qiyam bin Nafs. What does Al Qiyam bin Nafs mean? Al Qiyam means to exist. Here, Qiyam means to exist. Bin Nafs. The word Ba' here means because of. Let me explain this to you. I exist because of oxygen. I exist because of sun. I exist because of health. I exist because of the people around me who loved me, like my wife and my family. I exist because of food. I, as a creature, as a person, it is written within the intrinsic components of my existence to rely. I am muftaqir. I am in need. Even if I say I don't need, the fact that I'm breathing, I need. The fact that I blink is I need. Every, every morsel of my existence is reminding me that I am faqir. That I la aqumu bi nafsi. I am not independent and existing because of myself. I am living because of oxygen, blood, organs, a body, my family, food, the weather, the air. Allah Allah exists because he's Allah. That's what that means. How do you translate that? Truly independent. Truly independent. That's why when I teach, I teach this class to adults, I'm starting again this class next week at Swiss with adults. I asked him, this week I want you to make a list. What are you Qiyam with? What are you Qiyam with? And also, this is the foundation of social justice, what we call religious justice, not social justice in Islam. When we realize that everything lives and functions because of other things, then I have to make sure I'm not an oppressor. I'm not, this is the foundation of rights for people because they are not truly independent. They have to rely on others. So the idea of al-qiyam bi-nafs not only has an impact on theology, it has an impact on religious justice movements. Subhanallah! Look where we just went with that. Wal-qiyam bi-nafs The opposite of al-qiyam bi-nafs is iftiqar, is reliance. The opposite of al-qiyam bi-nafs is da'af, weakness. Then he says, radiallahu anhu, wal-wahdaniya. And this is where we're going to stop today, insha'Allah. Wal-wahdaniya, oneness. What does it mean, oneness? Oneness in three areas. In his essence, Allah is not one of three. وَلَا تَقُولُوا ثَلَاثَ إِنْتَهُ خَيْرًا لَكُمْ إِنَّمَا إِلَهُكُمْ إِلَهٌ وَاحِدٌ Allah says, don't say I'm, I'm part of a trinity. Number two in his actions, لَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا Nothing shares in Allah's actions because the material world, and this is again one of our most formidable criticisms of Christianity, is that when you make a human body share in the grace and punishment of God, this is idolatry. This is idolatry. The third, in his names and attributes, he's alone. The opposite of al-wahdaniyah is shirk. 
This is going to completely redefine how you've been taught shirk. You've been taught shirk by a marginalized theology within the Sunni world, which gained a voice because of oil and American support and the support of the British two, three hundred years ago. It doesn't mean that the ideology is necessarily wrong, but it means who supported and pushed and promoted it within the Muslim world should cause us all to be worried. But the mainstream understanding of Sunni Islam is that shirk is the opposite of al-wahdaniyyah. It's to say that something shares in the essence of God. That something shares in the power and attributes of God. Or to say that something shares in the actions related to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On purpose, with niyyah. We say that a Muslim cannot become a mushrik unless it's very clear. A Muslim cannot leave Islam unless they leave Islam like someone enters Islam. There's no takfir of a person based on maybe, maybe not, I don't know, I'm not sure. La ayah shaykh. So as we finish, today alhamdulillah we took the first seven Qualities due to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-wujud, the opposite of al-wujud, existence is not existence. The second, al-baqa, that he has no beginning. The opposite of that is birth. The third, uh, the, sorry, the second is al-qidam. The opposite of that is that he has, a, that he al-wilada, he was born. Al-huduth, that he evolved. The third we took al-baqa, that he has no ending. The opposite of that is death. The fourth, mukhalafatul al-hawadith. The opposite of mukhalafatul hawadith is two, tashbih or tamthil. Something says it's partially like God or it's completely like God. That's why we say, laysa lahu shabihu wala nadir. There's no partial likeness, there's no complete likeness to Allah. That's idolatry. And that means that Allah is beyond time, beyond space, beyond direction beyond anything that's measurable the next we talked about absolutely independent self-existing then finally the opposite of is shirk again existence the opposite non-existence no beginning the opposite of that is birth or, or evolving the third no ending the opposite of that is death the fourth, in opposition to creation, creation is not like him, he's not like creation, partially or impartially. The fifth, absolute independence. The sixth, mashallah, oneness. The opposite of oneness is shirk. How can all of these impact our life? Min ma'rifat. Min thamarat ma'rifat tawheed. How can this impact our life? When I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, it's going to increase my focus and my discipline and my obedience to Him. When Allah, I know that Allah has no beginning and ending, this is going to create my zuhud, my discipline with the opulent world. I'm not going to be someone into opulence because I know what's with Allah last, not what's with the dunya doesn't. The third, mukhalafatul hawadith, in opposition to all things, this is going to increase my ikhlas. The fourth, al-qiyam bin nafs, is going to increase my tawakkul when I know that Allah is the only true independent source in creation. And al-wahdaniyyah is going to increase my sincerity in worship.
If we have any questions, we can take your questions now. If not, inshallah, we're going to stop here. We only read to this part here in the book. Alhamdulillah, it's only one page because the aqidah of the Muslims is easy. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. And for those of you who join late every Sunday, probably later in the evenings, we're going to read a foundational text. This is an Azhari class textbook. This is very old, mashallah, in aqidah, so that you can have the foundations, alhamdulillah, of aqidah. What you have to know, mashallah, as a Muslim, falhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. Fahma'ana, alhamdulillah, ahad al-tulab min gami'i al-azhar. Nas'Allah ta'ala an yanfa'ak, insha'Allah, wa yu'alimuka ma yanfa'uk, insha'Allah, wa anfa'aka bima alamtak. Uh, again, the best thing you can do is if you want, enroll in my school at suhaibweb.com. Your support, $9.99 a month is nothing, man. Helps us grow, helps us to scale, helps us to hire employees and really take things in a great way. And again, we continue with free education. Uh, doesn't matter. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Any questions? So every week, inshallah, we'll gather. Go to the foundations of Aqidah that you have to know. It's very important if you're an MSA, if you're an interfaith. I see a lot of people making mistakes in interfaith because we say what we want, we think the non-Muslims want to hear. That's not an effective strategy. You have to have principles. You have to be a say, you know, respectfully, we don't agree with that. This is what we believe. I said, yeah, just take a position, man. If they really love you, mashallah, then they're going to they're gonna be your supporters regardless of that. Jazakumallahu khairan. I will post this now on Instagram. Please share with others. Let other people know every Sunday we'll be gathering together to go through this text. Really proud of those who stayed uh, and participated. May Allah bless you. Jazakumullah khair for people who uh, gave some badges. Absolutely, we teach Arabic. We have a class teaching Arabic the easy way for people learning to read Arabic. That will start next week, part one and part two again. Inshallah, learning to read Arabic the easy way. Very good class. Alhamdulillah, I think people will enjoy it. Right now, I got to take my daughter to the park. Or I am, you're going to be reading about my janazah <laughs> tonight. Jazakallah khairan. Super proud of you guys for participating. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.